Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Hope you guys have found Exodus chapter 3. If you ask the, uh, the majority of postmodern Western thinkers, um, people in our culture, in our community, and just across the landscape today in America, if they consider themselves as spiritual people, chances are the vast majority of those people would say, yes, I do consider myself as a, a very spiritual person. They do believe in some kind of life after death. They do believe that there's something beyond the physical, that there is something spiritual that's behind, maybe above all that. But if you ask the same group of people a very similar question, if you ask them if they are a religious person, chances are the vast majority of those people, the exact same people would say, absolutely not. There's no way I don't consider myself religious in any way. And there's this great trend in postmodern Western thinking among, again, the vast majority of people that you will come across that worship is something that they do not do or that worship is an option for them. And this is a notion that has been challenged in the recent years, and I just want to bring up one voice. You've actually heard this before. In 2005, David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address, and he's not a Christian, uh, so he doesn't, he's not speaking as a representative of Christ here. He's not preaching the, the gospel that we believe. But he says some things about worship for us to understand in our secular culture, world, and time that's, that's really significant, and I think he, he nails this. This was at Kenyon College at a commencement speech in 2005. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he continues, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is pretty much that anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, before I continue, he goes on, um, it's a lengthy quote here, so bear with me, but he's compartmentalizing and grouping Islam, uh, Buddhism, and Christianity into one a distinct category here. And so we don't believe that. We don't believe that uh, Christianity is, is just like all these other religions. However, you can understand exactly what he's talking about. He says anything else you worship is going to eat you alive. And he gives some examples. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He talks about intellect. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And here's how he concludes his thoughts on worship. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship it's not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscionable. 
is that they're default settings. So what Wallace is saying here is that every human being has a natural setting. Every human being, by nature of being human, worships. All of us worship someone or something. The question is not if we worship. The question is what or whom do we worship? And the Apostle Paul said something really eerily similar to this about 2,000 years before David Foster Wallace. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says this. It says, they exchange, speaking of every person who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, doesn't believe in God, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so what Paul does in Romans 1.25 is, is he categorizes all humanity into two camps. There are those who worship God, the creator God that's described in the 66 books of the Bible, who came to the earth in the form of Jesus and died on a cross for our sins and rose again three days later. And then there's everybody else who worships something created. At any given moment in your life, you're going to either worship God or something else that's a created thing. Paul Tripp puts it this way. Fundamentally, he says, stolen worship is at the heart of every problem in the universe. What that means is we take worship that was designed and we were created to give to God alone and we give it to someone or something else that's been created. At the heart of all sin is, is stolen worship from God. My favorite definition of worship is, is simply this. Worship, biblically speaking, is recognizing and responding appropriately to the greatness of God. Biblically speaking, in Scripture, worship is recognizing and responding to the greatness of God. And we're going to talk about worship this morning. In Exodus chapter 3, what I like to do is, is continue our sermon series in Exodus. We just started this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And you're going to see a, a topic here. You're going to see Moses who goes through an experience of God being revealed. And in that experience, he's going to respond in order to worship God. This is a very familiar passage to you. This is the burning bush story. This is where God reveals himself. We get the personal covenantal name of God in Exodus chapter three, but this whole passage is all about worship. It's about God revealing himself to man. It's about man recognizing and responding appropriately in worship to God. And so we're gonna see three things as we go through the text this morning. Number one, how is God revealed specifically to Moses? Number two, what is God like? And then number three, what is the proper response? How do we respond even to God in worship? Number one in your outline, number one this morning, how is God revealed? Look down at Exodus 3. I'm going to read through the first six verses. All right. It should say something like this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Moses responded, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, just, just a couple quick textual notes as you dive into this passage. Number one, it's universally accepted that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is the same as Reuel that we read about at the end of Exodus chapter 2, who had the seven daughters of Midian. He's a priest in Midian, which is pretty interesting. You guys know the first, one of the very first mentions of the Midianites in the Bible. It takes us back to Genesis. Remember those guys that came along and took Joseph out of, uh, out of the well that he was cast into when his brothers left him for dead? It was the Midianite caravan that came and took him off to Egypt. And Midian has some very interesting roots in the Bible. Uh, all we know here is that Jethro, Reuel, is a priest, the priest of the Midianites. It's a, this is a construct form of a noun. Uh, we don't know why different names are used. Perhaps it's been suggested that when Moses came along and one of the daughters of Jethro was given to him in marriage, he realized that Moses was a significant superior prince of Egypt, and he saw that as a blessing, and so maybe that's what inspired him to change his name. Jethro means something like superior, I believe. Um, we, we don't know why, but it's likely the very same person who's mentioned as Reuel in chapter 2. The other n item to note is that Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai. And you know this when you compare Exodus 19, 9 and 10, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. In other places throughout the book of Exodus, it will mention Horeb as the mountain of God. Now, Horeb is a general place description. It means something like a desert place. So probably what's happening here is that Horeb describes the area in and around Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is specifically uh, drawn out when you talk about the peak that Moses went up on to, get the, uh, to meet with, with God, to get the Ten Commandments and to get the law from God. But when you see Horeb, Three times in Exodus, it refers to the desert area that's right in and around Mount Sinai. Now, let's get into the text a little bit. Who appeared to Moses? Look down at your text, verse 2. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And grammatically, in Hebrew, that's a construct phrase. Lord is a proper name, proper noun. And any time in a construct phrase you have one thing that's a proper noun, everything is a proper noun. And so you, you have two ways that you can translate this. You could either say the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord, or you can say the messenger, comma, the Lord, Yahweh, kind of giving his, his full name that he will be known as throughout the rest of the book. In the rest of chapter 3, five times, when you see the Lord mentioned, it'll be used itself without the angel, without messenger before, referring to the exact same presence of God. Ten times the angel is referred to as God. And so what we want to say here right at the beginning of this passage is that this encounter, this appearance is the appearance of God to Moses at Mount Horeb in the form of a flaming bush. All right, this is not somebody else. It's not anything that's, uh, that's different from God. This is God showing up and revealing himself to Moses. And it begs the question, why would God appear in the flame of a bush? Why wouldn't he appear to Moses in a person? Why wouldn't he just come and speak to him? 
And there's a few reasons why. First, we know from the Old Testament, we know from other scriptures that God is spirit. John 4 verse 24 says that God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, right? As spirit, God is spirit. He is not a spirit, meaning that he is one among many spirits. He is spirit, period, indefinitely and absolutely. His essence is the essence of spirit. And so he manifests himself in the form of a burning bush. Second, God is omnipresent. And he begins to do something in this text that is foreshadowing, it gets us ready for the rest of the book, where God is going to manifest his presence again in a flame of fire, as a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, right? And so because God is omnipresent, he's present everywhere always at all times, but specifically he makes his presence known, felt, and experienced special times with his people. This is one of those places. And again, it's setting us up for his special presence with his people in the tabernacle as it's designed at the end of the book. Third, God is holy. And those who love the sacred nectar known as coffee, every single morning, make a thesis out of verse 5 when you get to it in Exodus. We are standing on holy grounds, right? If I, I, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll start a coffee shop and we'll start. I'm just going to throw it out there. If you guys want to take the foyer and expand the bar into like this whole big area, and we got plenty of room around here. It'll be holy grounds every Sunday morning. Come and drink this stuff. Focus with me. Do not take your sandals off your feet for the... <laughs> For the place you're standing is holy ground. To be holy means to be set apart. I love Karl Barth's phrase. Uh, it means to be distinctly other. When God is described in the Bible as holy, he is distinct from everything else that is common, normal, or worldly. He is distinct from everything else. Holiness like glory is not an attribute that can be distinguished from all of God's other attributes. You don't talk about God's holiness the same way you talk about God's love, his mercy, his benevolence, his truth. Uh, God's holiness is part of all of those things. It's not one of his characteristics to be distinguished from other characteristics. It's a quality that goes along with every characteristic of God. We would say that God is love, but he is also holy in his love. His love is holy, meaning it is unlike any other love that we ever experience or could ever know. We say that God is truth. He is holy in his truth. He is distinct in his truth. His truth comes in the form of person that is unique to God and to God alone. We say God is, is mercy. He is holy in his mercy. We go on and on. To say that God is holy is to describe to him a, a uniqueness that is incomprehensible and undescribable. He is unlike anything else that we can compare him to. There is no one like God. When you study his holiness, it drives you to that statement, to that truth, to be believed and applied to your life. Uh, Church Father Cyprian put it this way, and I love this, thinking about this passage in Exodus 3. It says, He, speaking of God, cannot be seen, for he is too bright for vision. He cannot be comprehended, for he is too pure for our discernment. He cannot be measured, for he is too great for our perception. That is why he reveals himself as a flame of fire and a burning bush to Moses. There's a mystery that's here, a profound, holy mystery that is God. He cannot be explained, and he cannot be understood. 
It's one of the things that drives us to worship him. If God could be understood to every extent, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. So there's an element of so much truth that's going on here that we don't understand. And, and the other thing I, I think about when I come to Exodus 3 is, is uh, Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. You just know this great statement from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and she meets Mr. and Mrs. Beaver for the very first time, and they, they start talking about Aslan, and, and she just she can't wrap her mind around who this Aslan is. And the first thing that she says to the beavers is, is he a man? You guys probably, probably remember this story really well. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood. The son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Do you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan. The lion. The great lion. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan, here's what he says. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without his knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Right now, so look how verse 6 ends in chapter 3. It says, Moses hid his, hid his face because what? He was afraid to look at God. And theologians refer to this passage as a theophany. All right, so when you read systematic theologies, you read articles about God manifesting himself, uh, phanos in Greek, or phano, would be to appear or to reveal. Theos, of course, is the word for God. It's a God appearance or a God revelation. And it's only after you can begin to see the holiness of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the untouchable, untamable, unapproachable nature of God. It's only after you fear God that you begin to place your faith in God. Moses' first response, just like many other people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is fear. He's scared for his life because he's standing before an all-holy God. And it won't be later until that turns into faith and to trust as God begins to reveal himself at a very personal, a deeper level. I want you to see something that's, that's just a little significant. I don't want to make much out of this text, a little spiritualizing here, but I think it is, it is kind of interesting. Verse 3, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. Uh, turn aside, is, it's a very common verb in Hebrew. Uh, a really good synonym here would be Moses had not planned on going in this direction. He saw the bush burning, caught his attention. He says, man, I want to go over there and check that out. This is a good synonym here would be that Moses took a detour from where he wanted to go and what he was planning on doing into going and to, to pursuing and, and seeing what was going on with this bush. The Lord sees that he takes this detour, and that's when he calls out to him. I find it very interesting that Moses takes the time to go on a detour to find something in the wilderness. His whole life was on detour. 
For 40 years, the prince of Egypt was in Midian. For 40 years, Moses was in the desolate wilderness places, shepherding, taking care of sheep and goats in obscurity. He sees this thing and he takes a detour and he goes see and, and sees it and he checks out what exactly is happening. A lot of you have probably had a very similar experience when you came to know the Lord. A lot of you are probably going in one direction, thinking you were probably going in another direction. And something happened in your life, God brought about a detour, and he used it to gain your attention, to stop you in your tracks, to really stop you from going the direction that you wanted to go and to turn to him instead. Moses is, is coming now and he's experiencing firsthand and one of the very first times in his life, for all that we know, a little bit about the truth of who God is and his desire to reveal himself to Moses. And it was God's initiative here. God showed up first. He was working in the heart and in the life of Moses. Moses takes that detour, and now he realizes that there is one true God out there. Now he sees this presence of God, and he's drawn to it, and he hears about who this God is that manifests himself to him in the wilderness of all places. I think that's significant. God is revealed in the least likely of places when we're really not looking for him. God is often revealed in the least likely of places when we're really not looking for him. And so if that's you and you find yourself in that position this morning, if, if that's you, even something in your life, you need to turn back to God. It's not a detour. It's his plan and it's his purpose from the very beginning of creation. Number two in your outline, what is God like? Look down at your text, verse seven. What is God like? Then the Lord said, I've surely seen, and I want you to pay attention to these verbs here in verse 7 and, and down in verse 8 too. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, verse 9, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Some of you probably know a, a really famous passage in Genesis chapter 15. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses in a dream and a vision, and he asks him to walk through the sacrifices splits these sacrifices in two, and he shows up as this uh, flaming, smoking pot in a torch. And Moses walks with God through the sacrifices. Very similar thing. God appeared to Abram in a vision. He arranges the sacrifices. And, and in that passage, he says something very unique to Abram. He says something like this, not word for word here. Know for certain that your ancestors will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And apart from their affliction in Egypt, many, many great blessings came because of this affliction in Egypt and the suffering. Apart from their affliction in Egypt, they would have never left and plundered the Egyptians on the way out. They would have never got the great masses of wealth 
that the Egyptians basically threw at them, telling them to get out of their land. They would never have experienced the great and awesome miracles of God at the Red Sea crossing through all the plagues and the deliverance, the Passover lamb that was shed on the doorway and and everything that was happening through the plague account. They certainly blessed Egypt, going back to Joseph. During a time of famine, it it was through Israel, through the family of Israel, their ancestors, that they were a blessing to the Egyptians. And there's, there's something in here, in this passage, in this paragraph, about God allowing his people to go through suffering for a purpose and for a reason. Why did God allow them, Israel, why did he orchestrate them to suffer for 400 years before he showed up and delivered them out of their taskmasters in the hands of their oppressors? Why did God allow them to suffer for so long? Why would a loving God ever do something like that to his own people? And and listen, ultimately, we don't get that answer in this text. Ultimately, I don't, I don't think we get that answer in any text of Scripture, down to the nines, down to the very details. But we do get an answer that sheds light on God's purposes, His ways, His plans, and His character. And I want you to see that through the sequence of verbs, starting in verse 7. The first one is this, I have surely seen the affliction. Not just, I saw the affliction. I have surely seen the affliction. That is an infinite absolute, infinitive absolute. Literally, seeing I have seen their affliction. This is why ESV translates it, surely I have seen it. In terms of suffering, I think it's impossible to know the whys. Why do some people suffer? Why have I had a a pretty easy life? and other people haven't. I don't know. Uh, But there is one thing that we do know. Suffering isn't unnoticed by God. God sees it. He's not aloof to suffering. He's not indifferent to it either. He sees it. And he sees it so much, and he's aware of it so much, that it prompts him to action. He does something about it. The next sequence of verbs you get is, Uh, I have heard and I know. I have surely seen, I have heard, and I know. And all those are anthropomorphisms, right? Is God a God with eyes that he should see? God has not revealed himself as a physical person yet. Is God a God with ears that he should hear? These These are giving human characteristics to a God who is holy, who is unlike anything else, any other person even. Um, Tolkien has, a, uh, has a, a really interesting phrase in Lord of the Rings. It goes something like this. At first glance, this seems really illogical, right? But he says something like this. says, everything sad will one day come untrue. Everything sad will one day come untrue. Well, why, why would Tolkien put it that way? You know, we live in this time where truth is up for grabs. There is no ultimate truth, right? Everything is just relative. Um, How can something true become untrue? And something is true, one of the ways that you know something is true is if it happens. If it happened, it's true. The events, the situations, the things that you go through, if it happens, it's ultimately true. So how can something become untrue? How can you go back and make something happen not happen? It, It doesn't seem seem correct to think in that way. Um, Truth is is such a delicate thing. 
But I think what he meant was, in the end, after all suffering is over, and after God's perfect plan is, is fully consummated and initiated, in the end of all things, when everything is perfect, how God not only originally created it to be, but how he orchestrated it to be even better at the end. When it's all over, we will no longer think of suffering as sad and somber events in life. I think we will see them as something beautiful that God used for his glory and for his purposes. I think he's painting this tapestry that, you know, right now we can see it from the backside and it just looks really convoluted. It doesn't make any sense. But, but one day when suffering is over, we'll turn around and we'll be able to see this tapestry that he's been weaving the whole time. And it will be almost as if those things become untrue because he used them for a purpose. Listen, do you know any other place in the Bible where you see God seeing something wrong, hearing somebody suffering and going through pain and tribulation, knowing that's the reality of their suffering, and then, and then, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. Do you know any other place where we see God seeing, hearing, knowing, and coming down to do something about it? Is this not the perfectly fulfilled in Jesus coming to the earth in his incarnation? Isn't this how God acts in the past that's just going to be a little bit different in the future and what he will do in sending Jesus to the earth in his incarnation? God is revealed. He is revealed as holy, untamable, untouchable, unfathomable. He is also unlike any other thing, person, any other false god that's out there. He is one who not only sees suffering, he not only knows about suffering, but he comes down and he enters fully into suffering himself. And he does something about our plight and our condition and sin. And it's because of what he has done for us that we can have everlasting life. Number three this morning, how do we respond? How do we respond to the revelation of God? Look at verse 11, and let's go all the way through 15 here. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And that's not a denial of the call. We'll talk about that just in a second. That's just a statement of humility. But he said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Again, Moses isn't waffling here. He's not rejecting the call of God. Uh, he seems a little shaky when he asks this question, who am I that I should go, right? Uh, only two other times when a person in the Old Testament is commissioned in this way do we see a similar response, and both of them come from the mouth of David in the Old Testament. The first time when David is getting Saul's daughter for defeating Goliath, he receives this precious gift from King Saul, and he says, who am I that you would bestow this gift upon me? The other time, 
is when God promises to give David an everlasting throne in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple. He says, David, it's not for you to build the temple, but here's what I'm going to do for you. A person from your generation, from your, um, your descendants, will sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever. Who am I that you would deem me as the recipient of such a blessing? Every time we see this phrase, it's not an attempt to deny the task, but it's an acceptance with humility. Listen, 40 years in Midian humbled Moses. 40 years of shepherding in obscurity humbled him. Um, Numbers chapter 12 will say that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Because when you shepherd sheep for that long in the wilderness, it does something to you. It humbled his heart. Now, tomes have been written on the divine name here. I am who I am. I want to just talk about this. There's been a couple big translations, big ways that uh, the Yahweh, the name, has been understood throughout the generations. Beginning in about the 4th century B.C., the Jews considered this name of God, we're going to say Yahweh is the right pronunciation here. Uh, the Jews considered this name so sacred that they wouldn't say it out loud when they were reading Scripture. They wouldn't read it. Influenced by other pagan ancient Near Eastern religions at that time, uh, there was a thought in other religions that naming a deity gave you the power or the control over them. So if there was a, a deity who was in charge of bringing the rains... If you called on that deity, it gave you power control as you asked them to work in your favor over that deity. And so there's something here that maybe, maybe this is a contrast to what other ancient pagan religions were doing. So we're not going to name God. This name is way too sacred. We're not going to read it. And so every time they came to this name, Yahweh, they would, they would read Adonai instead. And Adonai is the Hebrew word, general word, for Lord or Master. Now, uh, I'm going to start a song. You guys finish it. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his name is sufficient for... Man, that was beautiful. Who was... Somebody just really hit it out of the park right there. Jehovah. Have you guys heard this name, Jehovah? Here's, here's what Jehovah comes from. Don't, don't use it, okay? I don't, you can sing the song. It's fine. It's, it's kind of catchy. Jehovah is taking the Latin and actually the Hebrew consonants and putting the vowel points for Adonai onto them. That's how you come up with the name Jehovah, all right? It was never a proper name for God in the Bible. It was something that came about after attempts for the Jews to preserve the sacred name of God and not pronounce it when they came to it. And so that's how we get Jehovah. I heard a guy that put Jehovah in a paper in seminary, and his Old Testament professor said, you're better than that. Don't do that again. It's not the name of God, all right? It's something that came about because of this other thing. Uh, Jewish thought was that the divine name was so terrifying, worthy of honor, that you dare not even speak it. Right. In the medieval tradition, they concluded that the divine name wasn't a proper name, but a statement of existence. Thomas Aquinas in his Theologica, Summa Theologica is supposed to be one of the very first systematic theologies that was ever written. Thomas Aquinas said that Yahweh was not a name, but a philosophical assertion of his being, 
I am who I am. I exist. This is a statement of his existence. I was listening to a podcast that said that Moses is not asking this question, who shall I say sent me, because he doesn't think that God exists. He knows that God exists. He's asking this question because he wants to know the name of God. So he can relate that to the people of Israel when he shows up. Remember last time he showed up and tried to deliver them? and believe that he was their deliverer. Who is it that sends me? Yahweh. He is the God that has sent me. Grammatically, at the heart of the revelation of this name of God is the, is the verb to be. I exist. Hayah in Hebrew is how you would say it in a third person. Yeh, uh, yeh is probably how you would pronounce it in the first person. Um, there's different ways that, that this name can be read. The grammar and the syntax of this name actually allows some freedom for how to interpret it. There's no one ironclad interpretation that this is what it means and this is how you say it every single time it's used. This is how it should be. You can certainly translate this name, I am that I am, but you can just as easily translate it. I will be to you as I was to them. Speaking of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, look down at uh, verse 15. When you consider that, consider the history of Israel. Say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. You see that over and over in Exodus. I am to you what I was to them. It's not even a stretch to translate this as I will be there with you in Egypt as I am here with you in Midian. I will be there as I am here. And those, that element really gets to the heart of what God is calling Moses to do. How am I going to go deliver this people? They already, they already sent me away. They didn't want me the first time. Why is it going to be any different this time? The element gets to the heart that this name is the name of the God of Israel through history that has been working in redeeming his people through the unconditional promises and covenants that he has given that start all the way back in Genesis and lead up to here in Exodus. This name is a divine revelation that God was the one who worked in the past, he's the one who's working in the present, and he will be the one who's working in the future, and he will redeem his people from Egypt. You tell them, you know these gods. They're the gods of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how you reveal yourself uh, to them when you show up to deliver them. All right? A couple points of application, and, and we'll move some chairs. Number one. I don't know. I, this is different. I'm going to end a little bit different than I typically do here. We'll see how it goes. We're going to be finished at 1 o'clock today. Then we'll move some chairs, so... You guys good with that? Everybody's like, no, for wheel. Yeah, just get on with it. Come on here. Number one, knowing God's name allows us to trust in God's promises. Knowing God's name, let's say even names, you could go plural there, allows us to trust in God's promises. Yahweh is the covenant name for God, and it reflects that this is the God who has made promises, who keeps promises, he keeps his word, and displays his grace to the very least deserving and insignificant. God's covenant name indicates, this is God's covenant name, and it indicates that he is the faithful one even when we are faithless. 
that he can be trusted even when we are not trustworthy, that he will show grace and mercy even when we don't show grace and mercy. Understanding God's name is not as much about his being as it is about his presence, who he is in your midst. God is active. He is dynamic. He is working in the history of Israel. He's working in the history of your life. He's working in the history of this church's life. He is a God who enters relationships. He calls to people. He speaks to people. He asks people to respond to the holy revelation of who he is. When you call upon the name of Yahweh, you are calling upon the covenant relational God that has worked in Israel's history and will work through Israel's history even into the future and even into the church's future. He is making promises. He is fulfilling promises. A name for God is not a thing that has been made. When we give God a name, we are not calling something that has been made. He is the maker of all things. He is the one who comes to us. We are not the one who comes to him first. He comes to us, and he is the one who comes for us. Number two. I'm going to skip this part a little bit. Did you find it it interesting that uh, he shows up as a, a flaming fire? In the bush. Bush in Hebrew is senna. That's how you say it. It's, uh, a lot of people say there's a word play on senna in Sinai, how God reveals himself through a flame of fire on Sinai, through bush, all these, all these things coming together. Let's, let's skip through some passages here. You guys got, are you ready? We're going we're gonna to keep working. Everybody's like, just, just give me to lunch. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, all right? You can skip your place in Exodus here. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And look down at verse 23, okay? The most important book in the Pentateuch is Deuteronomy. If you guys can understand Deuteronomy, you can understand the rest of the Old Testament. You can understand even Genesis, what was happening back then too. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse... Let's go back up to uh, verse 23, Deuteronomy 4.23, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Um, Here, uh, consuming fire is, is applied to a prohibition against idolatry. In other words, the reason that you don't make a God into any other form, don't make or serve a God in any other form or image that you worship God and God alone is because God is a consuming fire and he will not tolerate being worshiped alongside of or along with any other God. He must be worshiped alone. And that's a dangerous thing when you come to the character of God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. Deuteronomy 9, verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now here, 
In Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, the consuming fire, the fire aspect of God is a little bit different. It's not given as a prohibition against idolatry. This is given as a, a symbol or representation of protection, of care for the Israelites. They're about to go into a land full of nations and people that are bigger than them, stronger than them, and they are everywhere. God says, don't worry. I am going before you as a consuming fire. I will protect you. I will be with you. Right? Turn to Isaiah chapter 33. Just one more after Isaiah, okay? But stop in Isaiah first, 33. Look down at verse uh, 14. Now let's start in verse 13. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. That's uh, the sinners in Jerusalem are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell? with everlasting burnings, right? Here, the image is not idolatry. It's not protection and security for the people. Here, the image is judgment. Here, the image is the purification of those who have turned against God and the harsh judgment that awaits them in the future. Here, the image of God as a consuming fire brings, promotes fear. Fearing God in Exodus chapter 3 here from Moses, fearing God when we read about who he is as a consuming fire, begins with a profound respect for his holiness. Fearing God begins with a profound respect for his holiness. God is a consuming fire. And it reflects the fact even here in Exodus 3 that he is ultimately untouchable, untamable, and unfathomable. There are aspects and characteristics of God that are being communicated through his manifestation in a burning bush that go well beyond the fact that this was a burning bush. They go into the aspects of judgment, of holiness, and of God's jealousy. Some of us have this idea of God that he is, he's just this big, kind, benevolent God. He's the big man upstairs. He's the celestial grandfather. He's the nice guy. He's the one that we can always turn to, and he will always dote on us and tell us loving, encouraging things, right? When we see Jesus, all we see is this kind, tender man who is always gentle, somewhat timid. Um, I love what C.S. Lewis says in Problem of Pain. I just want to read just one paragraph for you. He's talking about the goodness of God and what this means in Scripture. He says, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Second love is in italics. Not that he is some disinterested reality, not that he's indifferent, but he's concerned for our welfare. In awful and, and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. In awful and surprising truth, because God is love, we are the objects of that love. You ask for a loving God, you got one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of the terrible aspect, is present. 
not some senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscious magistrate, not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. The love that has made the worlds persistent as the artist's love for his work, despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as the love between the sexes. How should this be? I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creature, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes that he would love even us. When God reveals himself, here's what I want to just end with and leave with you before we stack chairs. When God reveals himself as a consuming fire, a lot is wrapped up in that image. And it is too reductionistic and limited to, to explain that in just one way. What's wrapped up in the consuming fire that's revealed to Moses is the jealousy of God. He loves you, he loves me too much to allow us to serve and worship any other God besides him. He loves us so much that he is willing to do anything it takes to bring our heart back to him when it wanders and strays to things that we believe are going to satisfy us more than God. Number two, when God shows up as a consuming fire, he protects us. He wants us to be his representatives. He wants to go before us and behind us to protect us and to show us his blessings. For the people of Israel, that meant going into the promised land with his protection. For us, it means living this life with the protection and the divine goodness of God. It doesn't mean he protects us from bad things, trials, or suffering. It means he's with us through it, through all of it. Number three, when he shows up as a consuming fire. It's a dire warning to all of us that sin has an exacting price with God. And if you don't answer to the almighty, holy, perfect God, everybody, everybody will have to give an answer for what they do in this life, in the next life. That means that every step you take, every decision that you make, every, every action that is a part of your life, you will have to give an answer to an all-consuming God for those things. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about a lot of the things that Christians do in their life will be burned up at the judgment fire of God. They will have no value, but the things that we do for the Lord with good and pure motives, they will be purified through the judgment fire of God. They will be seen for what they are, and he will consider those things glorious in his sight, which is an unimaginable thought in, in and of itself. God is a consuming fire. If you don't know him today, I hope you understand what that means for you and for your eternal existence. If you do know him today, do the things that are pleasing to the Lord in faith, trust, and obedience to him because you will give an account to him and know that he is going to be with you no matter what. His love is a jealous love. His goodness is a divine goodness. His holiness is unlike any other thing on the planet. And the extent that he has been willing to go for us to show us that through Jesus is the greatest miracle of all. 
He saw our affliction and sin. He knew about our affliction, and he came down to deliver us out of it. Because of Jesus, we can have everlasting life. Because of his death on the cross, he has saved us from eternal damnation, and we too can experience the grace, mercy, love, jealousy, justification, acceptance, forgiveness of God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I wish we had time to go look into Hebrews a little bit and even see more about the consuming fire. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to people in the Old Testament. Thank you for the ways that you've revealed yourself to Moses. I pray that uh, we can read this text, understand the significance, the depth of it, what it means for us, for our salvation, for our relationship with you. I pray that um, we would contemplate your great, deep love for us, your manifestation of a consuming fire in our own lives, um, that our confession and, and repentance of sin will fall in line with who you are in Scripture, that our joy our dependence on you will fall in line with who you are in Scripture, that our love for you and our worship to you and you alone will fall in line to the consuming fire who is God. Uh, We thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't leave us in our plight. You saw us in our sin, and you acted. You knew the depths of our sin, and you came down to deliver us through Jesus. Uh, I thank you for that, and I pray that the truth of the gospel would be ever-present in our lives, we'd be ever-grateful for it, and we would learn the depths of it day in and day out as we grow with you. Father, we pray all these things through you and to you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.